Deuteronomy chapter 24 this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. The volume of the book is good, and we want it all to be sown into our hearts. Moses continues, and we really should come to the end of what is his second of five sermons delivered to the children of Israel on this great theme of obedience. Remember, I think it's good, a small review always each week as we're making our way through this. He's not speaking to the first generation of the children of Israel that came out of Egypt. That generation has died off except for Joshua and Caleb and now Moses. And Moses is just literally days away from going to be with the Lord himself. And so now he is speaking this law that was once spoken to that first generation. It's now being declared to the second generation with the purpose that they would listen to that law. And as we get to the end of chapter 26, make a commitment in their own heart to keep this covenant to walk with God. And so it's leading to something where it's being spoken into their lives and then they will say, yes, that's the life that we want to live. We commit to obeying uh, the Word of God. We pick things up in uh, verse 5 of chapter 24. And Moses continues to declare, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. And I think the idea is any business that would take him uh, a, a, a far journey away uh, from his home. Uh, he will not be charged with those things. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So that, I'd like to sign up for that. I don't know where. I'm a little late on that. But that would be a pretty good deal, wouldn't it? I think there's a couple of things behind that. Uh, commandment that God gives. Surely behind it is the idea of strengthening the marriage. And so many decisions are made and marriage is a relationship. Uh, and we've got a lot of stresses and strains time-wise in the culture and the world and so many things pulling people in all kinds of directions. And uh, it's kind of dangerous in those uh, that early part of a marriage. And here was a thing where the marriage was to be the focus. People were to have time to grow together spiritually and grow together emotionally and intellectually and, and all. And so there was to be the protection of going out to war, uh, long absences due to business. And of course, I think it certainly couldn't have a detrimental effect on, on a marriage. And then I think also when it talks about bringing happiness to his wife, uh, I think the idea there is that and especially talking about going off to war. One of the great joys of a Jewish wife in the ancient world was to become pregnant and to bear a child and especially to bear a son that would then carry on the name of, of the family. And that was uh, super important in that culture. And so the idea was that they, this man would not go out to war and, uh, and get, uh, die in a battle and not be able to uh, raise up a child to carry on his name and even to see that child. No man shall take the lower and the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in a pledge. They had a lower and upper millstone. They'd take their grain each day, 
that they would buy, and it took both millstones to grind the grain or the wheat down to then make the uh, day's meal. And so if you took a person's upper millstone away from them as a pledge, in other words, they came to you and say, listen, I need 20 bucks really bad, and you say, well, give me the upper millstone. You know they're going you, you know to give you the 20 back, bucks back because that's how the family lives. And nobody eats without that upper and lower millstone. And so you say, all right, I'll give you the 20 bucks, but I want the upper millstone. And then something happens. Listen, nobody but an extremely poor person would pawn their upper millstone. So the idea is here is someone who is really caught in a tough place in life. And uh, if they don't pay back the 20 bucks, God says, you give them that upper millstone. I don't want the, the poor among my people or the poor period. I don't want them and their family going hungry because you're trying to get that 20 bucks uh, out of them. And so God didn't want the family deprived of, of necessities. And when people were in that desperate kind of place, it was a place to show them, uh, you know, real grace. They were not to be... Uh, taken advantage of. And so, uh, again, God's concern for the poor. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren uh, of the children of Israel and he mistreats him or sells him, and the idea of, is a ransom, uh, which so often goes with kidnapping, then the kidnapper shall die. You shall put away the evil from among you. So capital under the law of Moses, uh, kidnapping was a capital Crime. Again, I grew up, when I grew up in the United States of America as a kid, ki kidnapping was still a capital crime. The uh, United States Supreme Court did not overturn that and make it a lesser thing uh, until 1977. And I was uh, well out of high school and on my way by that point in time. be interesting, wouldn't it, to kind of look statistically? seems like there's kidnappings going on all of the time, you know, today. And I don't know, you're a kid, you're not tracking kidnapping statistics. But to get an idea of the impact of the culture upon that, uh, upon that particular uh, change in the law by the Supreme Court. I do know when I was a kid and you heard about a kidnapping, that was like, wow. Somebody's done something crazy. Now you just thumb through it and say, all right, should I have Raisin Bran or Cheerios this morning? As we read it in the paper, it's become, unfortunately, uh, too common. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you, just as I commanded them, so you shall remember to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam, which, who was Moses' sister, you remember, and uh, she got a little carried away with Aaron and accused Moses of taking too much on himself, and they wanted some of the power, and so the Lord uh, smote her with leprosy and then healed her of the leprosy, but she was to be put out of the camp uh, for a time until she could become ceremonially unclean and come back into the camp. And so uh, leprosy was an un incurable disease in those days. It's incurable today. It's called Hansen's disease, but they're able to arrest the progress of it through medication today. So it's a very dangerous disease. And basically what the Lord is saying here is, I want these priests and the Levites, when an outbreak of leprosy happens, I want that, my word, to 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 a T to be followed on handling leprosy. And the idea is, I don't care how much money the person has, I don't care how powerful they are, 
I don't care if they're Moses' sister. Nobody gets out of this. You obey my teaching. And so they weren't to have a group of uh, rich lepers get together and get a leper's rights uh, kind of community together and demand, you know, some kind of an exception here. The Lord said, no, no matter what, don't ever let anybody because of power uh, or money buy their way around my word. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you lend it shall bring the pledge out to you. And so here is someone who is, uh, they've borrowed property from you and uh, uh, now it's time to return that. Now, why would I borrow something from you except that you have more than I have? Uh, so you've got somebody that's wealthier, more powerful, lending to someone who is lesser. So the powerful person that's done the lending there, he does not have the freedom to go over to the poor guy's house, bust down the door, go through it, barge in, and take his thing back. Just because a man or a woman was poor did not make them uh, less of a person in God's eyes, obviously. And uh, so he protects and warns those that have these resources, don't be looking and abusing your blessings and your power against those that have something less. Go to the door, knock on the door, ask for your property, and then treat that person as a human being, as an equal. Let them bring the material that needs to be returned to you. There is something dangerous about wealth and about power. And uh, it, it doesn't say, we don't say this about every powerful person or every rich person, but it is easy in that kind of a place to begin to become proud and to uh, become abusive in the treatment of other people, even among God's people. He's talking to God's people. And so he said, now you pull back. You, you just, you're not any better than this other person. You just happen to have more junk than they do. Uh, so so don't, don't get carried away and uh, abuse your position. If the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that may, he may sleep in his own garment and, uh, uh, and bless you. So here's a man that's super poor. And uh, he comes up and says, uh, listen, could I have $5? And he said, I don't know, you're going to pay the $5 back. He said, I'll give you my cloak. I'll give you my outer kind of uh, garment. All right, I'll gi- give it. And then uh, here comes the evening, the cold. Somebody that's only got the clothes on their back, they don't have a house to go to. So typically, and it was very, very interesting, you go to India today, and, uh, and especially in southern India where it's warmer, and you can walk through the streets all night long, and the sidewalks are just full of people sleeping out on the street. They have no home to go to, and they simply have the shawl or the wrap that they, that they own. That's their blanket. It's closed during the day. It's a blanket at night. And so God said to, to, to them, listen, no matter what you gave them, the five bucks, you give them that shawl back. That's their warmth at, at night. And so again, God's protection uh, of the poor. And then the Lord declared, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. God said, don't worry about the five bucks. I see it. I watch it. I see what you did there. And I'm going to take care of you. And he knows how to take care of 
of people uh, that show this kind of grace above and beyond whatever kind of immediate loss that a person might experience. You shall not oppress a hired servant. And so here are some laws that have to do with uh, fairness to laborers or employees. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. And the great temptation very often is to say, well, they're poor, they're needy, uh, they're powerless, and I can just use them up and, and, and uh, wear them out and then just uh, suck everything out of them, throw them by the wayside, and then just get another one just like them. You stop, to re- stop looking at people as people that God loves. It's a real problem today. One of the things that God is going to judge in the great tribulation period, he's going to judge in, in Revelation chapter 17 a spiritual Babylon, uh, but he, he also speaks of judging a commercial Babylon in chapter 18, where the whole economic machinery of the whole world becomes more important than people. And so now instead of having an economic system of the world that exists to better people, now this thing has, takes uh, the greater importance and people are just used as the thing that's thrown away in order to keep this machine going. It displeases God. And we see this thing is, is getting very much backwards in the eyes of God today. It's a sign of the last days and people just get treated as, as kind of uh, trash so often or some you know, usable resource that you just take advantage of. And so the Lord doesn't view people that way. Don't oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates, even Gentiles, don't treat them this way. Every day, each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on his wages. He worked all day for it lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. Now in those days a laboring man, he would agree with who he's going to work for to work that day for a certain amount of money. And God said you pay him every day because he would take that money and then feed himself and his family that day. So we're talking about uh, poor in those days where they didn't have like a margin to get paid every week or two weeks or every month. They needed to be paid every day that represented food on the table. So God said, don't be missing even a day. You pay these people uh, every single day for the labor that they give you. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. And uh, so each person was responsible for their own actions. There were, at the time, in the nations uh, surrounding Canaan in those days in the ancient world, there were nations that, let's say, a father committed some kind of a crime that was a capital crime, and he died or something, uh, and they didn't get a chance to execute judgment on him. They felt perfectly free to then execute his son. And God says, we don't do that among my people. People are responsible for their own actions. We aren't killing dads because of what their kids do, and we aren't killing kids because of what the dads do. So uh, we take that uh, 
uh, off the table, thankfully. Uh, verse 17, you shall not pervert judgment, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you uh, to do this thing. And so here is the Lord re reminding them that uh, they were not to uh, uh, treat people and they should treat people the way that God had treated them. Think about when they were in Egypt. I mean, they were powerless. They were poor. I mean, and, and uh, God protected them and uh, in that condition gave them favor. And He's just saying, Listen, I'm not asking anything of you I haven't already done in your life and in your history. So do this and. Uh, and uh, it's the, only the right thing in the light of how gracious I've been to you. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field. So this is it, man. You've worked all year long to get that harvest in. Here's the wheat coming in. Everybody's supposed to get everything on the truck and clear out of there. And you're clearing out of there. And somebody forgot a sheaf. Oh, man. 150 bucks out there. That's going to come out of your heart. Okay. Well, so a sheaf gets left in the field. God said, you shall not go back and get it, for it is for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. These were the poorest and the most powerless in the culture, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. He said, you got one shot, as we're going to see in a moment, you got one shot, you go one shot through your field of barley or wheat or anything like that, and, and you get that harvest in and you take it out, you forget anything, anything you leave behind, that is left for the poor to come in now and, and glean from that. And so uh, this was uh, kind of a, a um, you know, ancient kind of welfare, uh, form of welfare. So the, the, people, the, the people that were poor, they realized, okay, the, uh, f the farmers have finished their harvesting. Now let's go in there. And there was always, you know, wheat that was left or wheat that had fallen to the ground, grain. And they would gather that up and, and they would then use it for themselves. And so it was like welfare with dignity. There wasn't a check that came in the mail. It was a thing where um, you were provided for by God. And, uh, and yet uh, you got a chance to sweat a little bit to do it and, and, and maintain some uh, dignity and develop some character while, while receiving it. And so uh, what went for the, for the field was also true of the orchards. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger and the fatherless and the widow. So they had one shot through and... Uh, how many, uh, those of you who are almond farmers, how many, uh, uh, how many times do you shake those trees or knock, lock them down on the average harvest? Any, any almond farmers here tonight? One time through. You are so, you guys are right on the law. Okay. So one time through. You get everything off the trees on that one pass through, pretty much? Aaron, do you? Okay. Now, you shake the trees? Okay. So the first, all that dust in the air that you farmers create in the valley here. <laughs> so that's, the first is a shaking, and then the second time is when the machines suck them all up and get them in there. All right. Got to humble the farmers on things. So they're, they're biblical. When I was a kid, we, I, and I grew up in Napa, 
We used to pick prunes for our school clothes. There were no jobs for kids that weren't graduated from high school. There just wasn't any work. There weren't any McDonald's or any of that kind of stuff. We barely had phones, let alone ones you carried around and all that stuff. There were still party lines in Napa. Crazy. But anyway, uh, we take three passes through. By the time we got done with those trees, there was a nothing for nobody. And, uh, but here at, on this, one time through, and we don't know what olives are. We know what almonds are. Thank you, farmers, for your input here tonight. So that's a one-time thing. But everything else was to be left then for the, for the people, the poor to come in, glean that, and then for them to make oil from it. You shall gather the same thing that's true of, of the orchard and the fields is true of the grapes. You shall gather the grapes uh, of your vineyard, and you shall not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And uh, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and therefore I command you, to do this thing. And so just good looking out for one another. Uh, chapter 25. If there is a dispute between men and they come to the court, so now it's a legal matter, that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and they condemn the wicked, so they've heard the whole case, this one's guilty, this one's innocent, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Forty blows maximum. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated uh, in your sight. And so in those days, uh, sometimes when a court case was uh, decided, uh, corporal punishment was a, a sentencing option for the judges. When somebody would be found of wrongdoing, uh, they would then be beaten with stripes as a part of that punishment. I remember in Israel, there's no prisons in those days. So you got a bunch of capital crimes, they know what to do with that. Somebody gets put to death. They know if somebody's done something, in a lot of cases, restitution had to be made, financial restitution to make it good. But what about some of these cases in between? Well, the judges would say he's to be beaten with 20 stripes or 10 stripes or 30 stripes, but it was never ever to exceed uh, 40 stripes. You notice that the punishment was to be meted out in the presence of the judge. So he was to, he had given the sentence, he was to make sure that that it was uh, carried out to a T. And when God said, listen, no more than 40 stripes, that was a, a very gracious thing on his part compared to some of the nations that surrounded uh, uh, Israel. And for them there was no limit on how many stripes you could lay upon a person and you could literally beat them to death. And for a lesser crime, they've now paid a, a capital crime, crime kind of uh, of, of a price. It's interesting too when God says, listen, I want 40, a maximum of, of 40 here. One of the things that that would ensure along with the oversight of the judge is that the person that was meeting out the punishment would not head into some kind of an emotional frenzy and, and lose control and then just beat this person to death. And so what God is saying is, I allow you to use corporal punishment as a part of, of the judicial system, but it is intended that it be used carefully and with, with restriction, and it's to be very, very measured and, and be, be done in, in, a, in a way that is, is, is very, very controlled. Now, in New Testament times, by the time we move from 
the law of Moses until uh, New Testament times, the Jews had uh, determined that uh, no one was to be lashed with more than 39 stripes. You remember when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, from the Jews, five times I have received 40 stripes minus one. He was beaten with 39 stripes. And the Jews brought it down to 39 stripes just in case somebody miscounted by one. And so that represented grace on their part. Aren't you glad there's greater grace in the New Testament? Thanks for the one stripe. Give it to me. I don't want to owe you people nothing. They just did it so they, they wouldn't uh, be accused of, of violating the law. Now, one of the things we oftentimes uh, will hear is that, you know, Jesus, when he was scourged by the Romans on the morning of his crucifixion, that he bore the 39 stripes. We don't really know that. The Romans certainly did not consider themselves under, to be under the law of Moses we have no idea how many stripes he bore or that they limited themselves uh, in any kind of, of a way. It seems that they were in quite a frenzy themselves in their mocking of him and, and uh, you know, hail king of the Jews and putting the robe on him and the whole deal. And so they may have gone way, way uh, beyond that. The reason is given here uh, that uh, for this uh, limitation of the punishment and your, that lest your brother uh, be humiliated in your sight. Okay, he's a criminal. He's broken the law. He's paying the price here. He's still a brother. He's still a human being. And if they went off and they beat this guy way beyond what the punishment was right, now he turns in his mind, it gets turned around, and it's no longer, yeah, you know, I'm bearing the consequences of my actions. I can live with this. This is right. To then saying, what they did to me, that was wrong. They went way beyond that. And now you've got a division among God's people because somebody went out of control in, in meeting out this punishment. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's about one of the cruelest pictures in all of the Bible. They would use oxen to pull these uh, sleds. They, they would find kind of a rocky surface that was flat, a rock surface that was flat, and they'd put the wheat out on the top or the barley or whatever it would be, and they would roll these great weights, and they would use oxen to roll these sleds uh, over the wheat to break the hard chaff of the outer coat of the wheat, break it off, separate it from the wheat, and then uh, the winnowers would come in and they would throw the wheat up into the, into the air while the wind was blowing, and it would blow away the chaff, and they'd be left with the wheat. And so imagine, here you have this oxen who is around all of this food, and uh, you uh, muzzle him so that he's putting out all of this labor all day long, and you're not letting him eat, eat a single grain or any kind of a stalk of wheat that's been left with any grain on it, and God says, don't treat the ox that way. The ox is doing his part in the harvest. He has a right to eat something of it. And so don't muzzle the ox. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, he takes this instruction, which is essentially on the humane treatment of animals, and he applies it to the humane treatment of, of ministers. And he declares in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? 
For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, speaking of those in Christian service, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. I love to preach these passages, so just bear with me uh, on this. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he said, Let the elders who rule well, leaders in a church, be counted worthy of double honor. And uh, the idea is compensation especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. For the scripture says, uh, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And and I do remember when I was a new Christian, I heard uh, a pastor declare that this meant, in terms of establishing the, uh, the salary of a pastor, that you should take the person who makes the most money in the church and then double it. Now, that, that, at the time, it seemed uh, very obscene and self-serving. But it's grown on me over time, really. I kind, of, I kind of see it now. You know, when you're young in the Lord, you don't understand these deep truths and this, this kind of stuff. So would you please just let each one of the pastors, before you leave, let them know how much you make each year. And we'll, we've got a board meeting tomorrow night. We'll get this worked out. So, but the thing that he's trying to, to solve here is that in the same way that that would be an indecent thing to do to an animal, it would also be indecent for uh, people who are giving uh, a, the amount of their life uh, to, for instance, a church or something like that, leadership in a church or pastors, where they aren't able to do that and then work uh, you know, in, in a secular job also, so to speak, and uh, do both things. They need to be compensated by the church for what they're doing, and, and they should be fairly paid for what they're doing. And to, to have uh, a work be blessed and for resources to be coming in and fruit as a result of their labor and then not have it in some way come to them in terms of fair salary, that would be a cruel thing to do to them. And the reason I mention it is it does happen. Uh, so often someone will come in, a pastor will come into a church and the mortgage is so high and the everything is so high and they bring him in and, and he's paid next to nothing for three years until uh, he just about dies with his whole family and they, he has to go out and then they bring another one in just like him. And that's not a fair, thing, a fair treatment of, of God's servants. And so this is the kind of thing that that he's addressing uh, here. Let's just take an offering right now, really. On the, Just kidding. If brothers dwell together and uh, one of them dies and has no son, and that was a bit of catastrophe in those days because it would mean that his name wasn't going to move on in Jewish history. And that was more important to them than it is to some of us uh, today in this culture. So he's died, he's married, he's died, no son. Then the widow of the dead man shall be married to the, uh, the, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family because the, the family property would then move out of the family and into his family. Her husband's brother, so her brother-in-law, shall go into her, take her as wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, marry her, and and become involved with her uh, physically. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears uh, will uh, she bears will succeed to the name 
of the dead brother in order that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so this first son that would be born from this union, that son would bear the name of his uh, of of the the first husband, so that uh, the uh, that his name would continue, and it would also provide the uh, wife with a son, a child, and that was kind of the Old Testament way, the ancient world way of social security. Your children would take care of you in old age. So this was what God uh, had devised for what, what needed to happen and why. But if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, so he may be greedy, he may be self-centered, he may just not like the woman, but whatever the reason is, he says, I don't want to do this. Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and uh, the entrance of the city where all of the powerful kind of leaders of rulers of the of the uh, people uh, sat and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. So he's violating this commandment of God. And then the elders. Uh, of his city shall call him, speak to him, is this true? And you're, you're not going to obey God's commandment in this. But if he stands firm and says, I don't want to take her. So he did have the option of not doing it. Now there was a stigma attached uh, to this, and uh, the stigma follows. Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, and probably the whole village at this point, Remove his sandal from his foot. Now, what we're going to read about here is, is uh, both things are considered a deep insult in the Middle East. Uh, to take a sandal and wave it at someone or to hit someone with, with a sandal in the Middle East is a great insult to this day. Some of you might remember when... Uh, the, uh, the statue of Saddam Hussein was pulled down, that great big bronze thing, and they had great difficulty getting it down, and they knocked it down during the war, and it fell down into the plaza, and the people swarmed around it, and what did they do? They took off their sandal, and they didn't hit it with their hands, they hit it with their sandals. And that was an insult. This is something from their feet. I mean, it's kind of a, the dirty thing. Uh, to do so she would take the, the remove his sandal from his foot then spit in his face in the Hebrew it is it could just as likely be that she would spit on the ground before his face in other words in his uh, viewing of it to spit at someone in any culture but especially even today in Middle Eastern culture you better be armed because you've got to fight on your hands. That's a deep, deep insult. And so the idea is, is that this man has publicly humiliated and insulted his uh, sister-in-law and she kind of gets to have the final uh, insult. And she will answer and say, so it shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed and so there would be a stigma really for the rest of his life negative stigma for a failure to uh, obey this commandment the, the, I think that this law has the, the most beautiful illustration of it and probably in the whole uh, Bible has to do with uh, Ruth the Moabitess, and after her husband had 
died, Ruth then married um, his closest blood relative, which is who's being spoken of here, a man by the name of Boaz. And uh, Boaz uh, was willing to do what the law said related to Ruth, married her, and then children came forth out of that union and uh, out of that uh, lineage of Boaz and Ruth uh, uh, came uh, the physical lineage of Jesus coming into the world. And so Boaz was a, a really a wonderful man as a kinsman redeemer. It's also interesting, he was a wonderful man in terms of leaving wheat in the field. They talk about not going back and taking his sheaf. Remember when Ruth was working out in the field and uh, trying to gather wheat, again, very vulnerable, husbandless, and and all in, in that culture and poor. And he said, you know, throw handfuls of grain on the ground so that she gets even more than she would normally get. So this was a real, Boaz was a very special man in his attitude toward God and toward the, the word of God. If two men fight with one another, so you got a Donnybrook going on here. These folks are, this, this, is, a, this is a bad one. They're fighting. And the wife decides to get involved of, of one of them, and she draws near to rescue her husband. So this is quite a gal. She's going to rescue her husband. He, must, he might not be much of a fighter. I don't know what. But she decides she's going to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes the foe by his genitals. Then you shall uh, cut off her hand. You shall, your eye shall not uh, pity her. Now, this action of this woman was more than just an action of immodesty. What she is clearly wanting to do is to physically mutilate the man. She wants to permanently uh, um, relieve him of the ability to have children for the rest of his life. So again, this was a very serious thing in that culture because uh, it was important that, that the name of the family would continue. Uh, so we have no record in the history of the Old Testament or any record in terms of Jewish history that um, there was ever a, uh, a, a cutting off of anyone's hand in violation of this particular command. And so it was uh, never needed to be enforced. Apparently the, the deterrence aspect of, of the law uh, kept, any, uh, kept everyone uh, cordial, apparently, even in a fight. I don't know how else to put that. So cordial in a fight listen I'm a product of public education we work with the vocabulary we have you shall not have in your bag differing weights a heavy and a light so in those days when you if you were a merchant you had a scale so somebody would say I want five pounds of flour so they take the five pound weight put it on this side then they measure out five pounds of of wheat over here flour until it was even and then they would give you that much wheat and well the merchants if they were dishonest they would take and uh, make this a lighter weight over here so yeah it's five pounds but it was only four and a half and then give them four and a half pounds of of wheat and uh, flour and then they they would charge them for the five so just like we have scales in a deli and that kind of thing that this is what was happening here and and the lord says uh, the lord is the original member of the better business bureau of Israel. He wanted his people to be known. You be I want people in in essence what he's saying is I when when people come into a Jewish shop I want them to seek out a Jewish shop 
Because they're going to know that no matter how everybody else treats them in the world, they're going to be treated with fairness here. Same thing applies to the Christian. If you have ever been done wrong in business by someone who's claimed to be a Christian, and they did some kind of a Mickey Mouse thing and took advantage of you on that, I mean, that leaves a really bitter taste in your mouth. And that taste then it gets put upon God. So the Lord said, you're not just representing yourself in business, you're representing me. You're to have a, an honest set of weights, no heavy weight and a light weight, because then they would use the other weight if they were buying something from you. They, they could rip you off coming and going. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a, and a, and a small. And uh, so that's the kind of thing you go into the fabric store and they take and they pull out, you know, the the uh, 36 inch kind of ribbon right here okay that's three feet and this and it's really 30 uh, 33 inches instead of 36 and he's just ripping people off God says don't be doing that you shall have a perfect and just uh, weight a perfect and just measure in order that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you God promises to prosper us as we do business properly for all uh, who do such things all who uh, behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God remember what uh, Amalek did to you on the way when you were coming out of Egypt how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God and when the children of Israel came out of Egypt you remember they weren't armed they're just a bunch of poor people coming out of Egypt with a great God and uh, so they're making this great journey out of Egypt toward the promised land it's a long way people are old uh, people got kids people are sick all kinds of things going on and so there would be this group of straggling toward the end uh, on the end of uh, of the great mass of people two to three million people and Amalek took we're told in this passage and they attacked the children of Israel at this moment of vulnerability. They did not attack the front of the line where the studs were. They went and cowardly went to the rear and attacked and killed the weakest. And God took note of it and, uh, and said, listen, when you get into the land, I, I, I want you to judge the uh, Amalekites because of what they did here. And when he speaks there at the end of verse 18 and says, And he, Amalek, did not fear God. They didn't respect the plans that God had for the world through the Jewish people. For them, just wipe out the Jews. It doesn't matter. Who cares that the Scriptures are going to come into the world through them? Who cares that the Messiah is going to come into the world through them? And, and the Lord said they had no spiritual concern of any kind. And so, go ahead and, and uh, we're, we're going to judge them uh, for that. And so the, the judgment is... God has, a, God has a long memory related to the treatment of His children really does. It's a long memory. It's interesting in the uh, book of Revelation when it talks about the judgment that's going to be uh, meted out upon uh, the world and all, that uh, when, when that, uh, one of the judgments is, is poured out on the world, the Lord makes a proclamation that says, in essence, 
as, and it's as, it's as though it, the, the waters, the seas, and the rivers are turned to blood. And the declaration in heaven is, they've shed the blood of my people. So turn the rivers and the sea to blood. And it's just perfect justice. And that was just the Lord saying, I notice how this world treats my people. And I, know, I remember it. And I know how to judge them righteously for it if they don't repent of it. And therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall possess it as an inheritance that uh, you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And so the same portion of, of a destruction of the Canaanites and the people that were in the land of Canaan when the children of Israel conquered, the Lord said, I'm going to reach uh, out uh, beyond those borders in this one case and include uh, an annihilation of uh, the, the people of uh, the Amalekites. And, uh, and, and the people of Amalek, they, they sought the destruction of the children of Israel. I mean, through you know, Balaam and the whole, it's a big old uh, mess of things. So God said, uh, when there'll be a future time when you settle in the land, We'll go ahead and, and take care of business uh, related to that. We'll stop there. We'll pick it up in chapter 26. We almost got to the end of the sermon.